here, Luke chapter 6, 1 through 11. <clears throat> On a Sabbath, he passed through the grain fields. His disciples were picking heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands and eating them. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, Haven't you read what David and those who were with him did when he was hungry? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat? He even gave some to those who were with him. Then he told them, The the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. A man there was... Uh, a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The scribes and Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so that they could find a charge against him. But he knew their thoughts and told the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand here. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? After looking around at them all, He told them, he told him, stretch out your hand. He did, and his hand was restored. They, however, were filled with rage and started to discuss, started discussing with one another what they might do to Jesus. So I tried to avoid uh, social media comment sections uh, like the plague, especially during a plague. Uh, and so, we, you know, what we see in the in the comment sections, you know, on YouTube videos or on Facebook or on you know just different posts that have comment sections, um, we see this character, social media warriors. You know, these are these self righteous, militant, opinionated professionals, quote unquote. And the reason I, why I'm able to hark on them, and, and I do hark on them so much, is because I used to be one. Um, <laughs> just, I, I saw every, everything on Facebook, everything on social media as an opportunity to fight. I'm going to get in there and I'm going to, I'm going to comment. You know, there's even a picture that's like this guy, this like character, this cartoon character is like, you know, they're like, come to bed. He's like, no, there's someone wrong on the internet. Like going crazy to correct them because they have to be right. They have to be true. They have to correct every, every single person, everything, you know, fighting every single battle, um, with opinions and dying on every hill. You know, and, and what this does is it makes us feel like an authority. It makes us feel like we are the one in prominence. We are the one who has the answers. We are the one, uh, and, and we have to have a say. Even like with COVID and, and politics, even before this, like every single thing that happened was very trendy, Everything was a trend. Like everyone had to jump on the bandwagon and have something to say about a certain cultural issue or something was going on within the culture. And so uh, everyone had to have an opinion. Everyone had to have a perspective. And it started to be in the church as well. Like it seemed like every, every church had to have an, an, a, a something to, like some sort of letter or some sort of post that addressed a certain issue that was going on at that, at that moment. Um, and so for me personally, whenever I would do this, uh, you know, trying to, to be the authority and to try to comment on everything, I wanted to feel powerful. And social media does just that. I mean, think about what social media has done. 
Social media has given every single person with a computer or a phone power, has given them a voice. And not every single person in our society should have a voice. That's why you know, the, the professionals, the ones who had gone through school, had gone all through this training and, and, and you know, in order to earn having a voice in our culture today. It, it, you know, back then, you know, throughout the years, it's been journalism and writing books and writing papers and being on the radio. And like you had to earn your way into that position to have a voice, to have a place of authority in society because you were trusted. Now it's given every, every person in our society a voice. Everyone is an opinion. It makes, makes people feel powerful. Um, and so, but like I said, it makes every person feel like they are an authority. I am the authority. I am authoritative over other people. You're just stupid because you don't agree with me. Disagreement. Uh, so let's look at that, that word, authority. What does that mean? Power, jurisdiction, mastery, rule, supremacy. Influence, leverage, approval, and specifically this word I want to focus on, control. Having control, having the say about what happens. Um, And so my question is for you today as you're watching, who is the authority of your life? Who is the authority that drives and controls your existence? Is it you? Is it, is it others? Is it people on social media platforms, people that you follow, people that you respect, you know, podcasts you listen to? Is it God? You know, churchy answer. I'm supposed to have God, Jesus, the Bible. You know, God, Jesus, the Bible. They, they lead me. They control me. They are my authority. But are they? Is God truly the authority of your life? Is the word of God, is scripture the authority in your life. Even us as a church, we say you know, that uh, the Bible is the, is the final authority in all matters that pertain to life and, and godliness, life and practice, life and faith. And so my question this, to you today is, is Jesus your way, truth, and life? Now, it's, a lot of, it's really easy to, to just jump on there and say, yeah, of course, yeah. yes, yes, Jesus is. But my question is, is he? When you come to faith in Jesus, you are proclaiming your faith in him and saying, you are my authority. I am pledging my allegiance. This word faith, uh, this word pistis, uh, or pisteo, uh, or pistos, and so you know, this is how we remembered it in Greek class. We'd always remember it by saying, oh, if you're not faithful to your wife, she's going to be pistos. So, uh, so <laughs> this is how we remembered this word. Pist- it has this, in it, this, this um, connotation of faithfulness and loyalty to something or someone. Um, and so are you, have you truly placed your faith and devotion and loyalty in God? And does God control if, he's, if you've truly given your life to him and said, I trust you, I'm pledging my allegiance to follow you. That means that I'm placing you on the authority of my life. These Pharisees weren't. These Pharisees we're basically kind of pretending. They were very devout, like this, this, this sect of, of, of uh, Jewish life called the Pharisees that were questioning Jesus and talking with him. They were very, very good at kind of skirting around it, trying, you know, very having this authority over everyone else, except, so basically they were placing themselves in the place of God over the people. They wanted to have the power and the way that they controlled and had power over the people, they used God and they used the Bible 
to have authority and power and control over people. They weren't pointing to people to love and serve the Lord Yahweh. And so the question here is, what is, you know, what, what is this main topic that Luke is addressing in this section? Basically, it is authority. It is that word authority. That's the whole connotation. And using the, the element of the, of the Sabbath as this avenue by which to describe authority. He's asking the Pharisees, who has the authority to say what is what? Is what? Um, so the discussion and, de- and debate that Jesus is having with the Pharisees is centered around this concept of Sabbath. Now let's look, let's look at that word Sabbath just so we have an understanding uh, of what that is and what that means. The word in Hebrew and, and Greek simply, simply means to cease, to desist, to rest. In essence, it's saying, take a day off. It's your day of rest. It's, it's taking a day off of work. Um, and, and, and so Jesus, you know, the, so Jesus is using this element of the Sabbath as an illustration. So I want to make sure this is, this is peripheral. The, the concept of the Sabbath is a tool. But Jesus' point is he's, he's, he's bringing them into this discussion about authority. Who has authority over the law, over the way of life? And we're going to use the Sabbath as our little guinea pig tool here. But here's, the, here's, here's one, something I want you to, to, uh, to, to realize here as, you're, as we're talking, is that the Pharisees, this group of, of uh, Jewish sect, they didn't have any real authority. Not just because they weren't God. They didn't have any real authority because they didn't have an authoritative role in the people of God. They weren't priests. They couldn't offer sacrifices or worship on behalf of the people in the church. Right? I'm sorry, in the people in Israel. They were not even a part of the political you know, Sanhedrin. They, they had no authority to make or do anything. They had no authority to kill Jesus. Like they were talking, you know, they, you know, they, were, they started to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Well, here's the thing. They had no authority to do anything to Jesus. They, had, they were influencers. The ones who had the authority were the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, which we see later in, in Jesus' crucifixion. We see this, you know, that the chief priests and the Pharisees were together because the Pharisees were the theological consultants a lot of times of, of like the, uh, you know, with the scribes for the Sanhedrin and the, and the ones who had the actual power for the priests who actually had the power to worship and to, to help the people of Israel worship. But so the scribes and the Pharisees, they prop themselves up as, a, as the authority over the people, over the law. Specifically here, again, remember the tool, over the Sabbath. But here's the thing. Let's look at what is the actual law. What is the real law? So let's go all the way back. We're going to go all the way back to Exodus and Deuteronomy. So Exodus 20, uh, verse 8 through 11 says... And this is part of the Ten Commandments. This is part of the Big Ten. That, you know, Moses, you know, you know two big tablets, you know, coming down from the, from the mountain. You know, first time he threw them down. Or, and uh, <laughs> I love someone you know, wrote a, did a picture that said, you know, Moses was the first one to download, you know, from the, from the, from the cloud and <laughs> on tablets, on, onto a tablet. And <laughs> to use tablets to download from the, from the cloud. But, and so he walked down the mountain with the Ten Commandments, and this is one of them. But it's not even short, you know, like do not murder. That's pretty simple, pretty quick. This is a whole section of scripture. Let's look at it. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You are to labor, work six days and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath 
to the Lord your God. You must not do any work, you, your son or daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock or the resident alien who is within your city gates. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them in six days. Then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. This is Deuteronomy chapter 5. Be careful to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. You are to labor six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Do not do any work, you, your son or daughter, your male and or female slave, your ox or donkey, any of your livestock, or the resident alien who lives within your city gates, so that your male and female servants, slaves, may rest as you do. You wanted the slaves even to rest, remembering what? That you were a slave also in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out. He freed you of, you know, brought you out of there with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. That is why the Lord your God has commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. I love this word, remember. It talks about in the very beginning of this passage, beginning of this passage, remember. Remember, it's not just this bringing something to, to mind and remembering it in your conscience, in your conscious thoughts. This is a verbal causation. So what that means is it's verbal, which means causing action. And so, like, for instance, you know, I, was, I had a conversation with Anne Berlin, my, my wife, this last week. And uh, just asked her, I was like, hey, what would, you, what would you think? How would you feel if I remembered our anniversary or you remembered your birthday or say it was remembering you know, uh, M- Mother's Day, but I did nothing about it? I was like, I remembered it. I, and I saw it come and go. She, she, <laughs> she said, well, I would think that you didn't care. I, I would, not only that, that I didn't care to do something about it, but... Maybe she even said, like, maybe you might be saying something by not doing something about it. Maybe you were saying the opposite, that you do not love me because you remembered and did nothing about it. Now, it'd be something different if you didn't consciously remember it. But the fact that you remembered it, but that meant nothing. Meant, you know, she said that you might you know, speak to me that says the opposite. Like, you're, wanting, you're not loving me. You're doing the opposite of loving me. Um, and so... This is basically that same word, this, cause, this causing action word to remember. Remember the Sabbath and do something about it. Uh, and what is that? Doing something. Doing nothing. <laughs> it's resting. It's not necessarily doing nothing. Here, and here's the thing. I don't want to spend too much time on, on describing the Sabbath. But basically, the Sabbath was a day that you were not supposed to, to work. Uh, it wasn't that... Um, you, you, you couldn't do anything. We'll, we'll get to that a little bit later. But the fact is, that it, this was supposed to be a day of rest, a day where you filled yourself up, you rested your mind, you rested your body, you rested from laboring and working, harvesting and doing all, the, all these things. Because remember, they were an agrarian society. So a lot of times there were heavy farmers and building and building and, and doing all these things. Manual labor was, was a way of life. Constantly preparing food. Uh, you, know, you know the daily the daily meal, and so. But we look at this law. We look at these all these different laws. I mean, there's like 900 something you know laws in the Old Testament, and of all of them in the Old Testament, in this section of Scripture where Jesus is is debating and, and uh, arguing with the, with these Pharisees, 
that the funny thing is, is that Jesus wasn't actually breaking any of the Mosaic laws. He didn't. He didn't break one single law. Here, let's look at that. Look, the, bread of, the bread of the presence. Now, the bread of the presence illustration that he uses in this, in this concept, in, in this discussion with them, uh, you know, comes from 1 Samuel 21. I'm not going not to read it, but just if you want to write those down in your notes. 1 Samuel 21, 1 through 9 is where this occurrence of, of, of uh, King David happens. And so what Jesus' point was saying is that even if he, we were breaking any of the laws, there are evidences throughout Scripture of God's heart for people. So that you know, David was coming, it could have been maybe like straight off the Lord's table, or it was not so much straight from the Lord, it could have been a day of transition, like, which was a Sabbath day, uh, where the priest made the new bread. So there's, a, there's a, a table called the bread of the presence that had 12 loaves of bread on it, representing the 12 tribes of Israel that they were before the Lord. And it's kind of like setting this table for, for God uh, of food. But they would take those bread, that bread, after it, was, after it was, you know, a week old, they would take it and they would, that would become the priest's bread. And so it could have been that this day of transition where the priests were giving David what, what, what belonged to them, the bread that was for the priests. So they were taking on a fast and giving it to David. But so the, like it, it didn't abide by the laws, but there were, there were concessions that could be made in times of great trial. And God didn't judge them. God didn't condemn that action of King David. And King David, one of the most prominent people um, in throughout all of Israeli history. Um, and so, and God didn't condemn David for doing that. And so even if, even if Jesus and the disciples were breaking a law, which they were not, there were, there are certain, Jesus was saying there are concessions to God in God's heart. It's not like, it's not this black and white thing, which I know a lot of people have issues with. There's, you know, the Bible is not black and white on this is, you know, on, on a lot of things. But it, so it's like, there are concessions that God makes in the law. I want to say, I want to say that specifically about the law. Um, like, like here, Deuteronomy 23. When you enter your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat as many grapes as you want until you're full. But do not put any in your container. Again, that's work. That's laboring. That's not, it's like saving and putting aside. Uh, and then the next verse. When you enter your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck heads of grain with your hand, but do not put a sickle to your neighbor's grain. So this is an illustration of what is constituted as work and harvesting and cultivating because if you collect it into a container or you put a sickle to it, you are actually stealing your neighbor's grain. But if you went through and just ate some grain and ate some grapes, that wasn't considered theft. That wasn't considered work because you weren't working your neighbor's fields and vineyards. And so Jesus was saying, this isn't considered as work. Um, but what Jesus and the, and the disciples were doing was that they were breaking the traditions of men. They were breaking what's, what's called, there's these two books that were written between the Old Testament and the New Testament during this place, this time called the intertestamental period before Jesus came. And the, these two books called the Mishnah and the Talmud. And so the Mishnah has 39 categories of work with subcategories. And they were subdivided into like these lists. So it's 39 categories of work and all these regulations and rules and traditions that they would not do, that they constituted as work. So what Jesus was doing 
was that he was breaking their traditions, not God's, not God's law. Let's look at the man with the, the withered hand as an illustration. The question, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? To, to do, to, uh, what, is, what, do you, what do you say here? He said, is it good you know, to do good or evil, to save a life or to destroy it? And I love this word, this word they save here. This word save in the original languages means uh, to, to heal or to restore. So it wasn't just like to save from imminent death or save from imminent harm, but this word means to heal or to restore. This is the, the phrase, the word that we use for salvation. When we are saved, when Jesus saved us, he heals us, restores us to right relationship with God. And that's the thing. That's the question that Jesus is asking. Is it okay, is it good to restore, to bring healing on the Sabbath or to destroy, to bring life or to destroy life, to bring flourishing or to bring destruction? That was his question. And of course, the obvious answer is yes, it is good. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Duh! That's what Jesus' point is. Um, so this, the, the man with the withered hand. So uh, I had a, a professor in, in seminary that, uh, so he had a, a mild case of cerebral palsy. And what that, mean, what that meant for him was that his, his right hand is shriveled up and it's, just, it's unusable. The, I guess the nerve, nerves, the communication, whatever it is. But he has a cerebral palsy in his hand. Um, and so this, this could obviously be, you know, the, the, very, the, the description about it looks like it could be that this man had some sort of palsy. Um, and so Jesus was helping this man. Because think about, you know, how much you'd use your right hand uh, how, or could, you know, having to compensate with, with only one arm, you know. I mean, like most mothers think that, you know, are like, asking the question like, you know, if, if, evolution, if, if evolution is true, then why can't I have like four hands, like four arms, you know, so because of the, because of the workload. So, it just, so this, this, this palsy, this, this kept him from being able to work as much as he could. And so maybe he, ha- he compensated over the years and found you know, a labor or a job that he could do. That was, but think about it. Everyone had to do the same kinds of, kinds of work. They had to make pottery. It's very difficult one-handed. Everything in life is difficult one-handed. And again, remember that this man could also not go into the, not go into the temple or the synagogue to worship why? Because he was not blem, uh, blem, blemishless. Um, he he had um, he had a disability. Had a, a, def, a what they would consider a defilement. They couldn't go into the temple with a disability. Um, and so, what was Jesus doing in this instance? Very much like the leprosy. The the man with leprosy couldn't go into the temple. He couldn't worship God. Just like this man with the withered hand could not worship God. He'd go in the synagogue but he could not go into the temple because he had a defilement. Because um, obviously he could go into the synagogue because he's in our story today. But, uh, but what, this, what Jesus was doing was restoring this man, was helping this man to rest because he could then work six days efficiently and effectively to be able to rest. He had a lot of difficulty making a living providing for himself and his family, if he had a family. Um, but here's the thing. The, the religious people standing there, like, what would have happened if that would have happened today? 
If someone with a withered hand, if my professor came to visit and all of a sudden I just felt this calling from God saying, you know, tell him to reach out his hand. And all of a sudden, blah, oh, all of us would be like, whoa, what, what, throw on some music, let's party. This was crazy. Watching someone be healed right before your very eyes, we would freak out and be amazed and glorify God but not these Pharisees. The religious couldn't even marvel or enjoy it. It It's right in front of them. They were more concerned about how Jesus did good than with marveling at the good that was done. And what was it? What did it say? They were filled with rage. Then we're talking, you know, we're not talking about like, you know, the grumpy, grumpy person in the back going, I don't agree with that. No, we're talking like stood up and like pointed his finger. Like they're filled with anger and rage. But here's the thing that's interesting. Jesus didn't even technically do anything wrong. He technically didn't even do anything. All he did was have the guy stand up in the middle of the room and he just, he just stand, stood there. He said, reach out your hand. He didn't even touch him. Jesus didn't touch him. Who healed this man? Did Jesus or the Father? Jesus just simply told him what to do. The Father is the one that healed this man and he restored his hand. So Jesus didn't even technically do anything wrong. What upset the Pharisees was that Jesus regarded himself as being able to operate sovereignly outside of their religious system outside the gates of what they considered to be good and true. The Pharisees' rage was out of a lack of ability to control Jesus. Because remember, authority. They wanted to be the authority over everyone, over everything. They were recognized as consultants to the highest people in the land and entrusted with the reading of Scripture, and the teaching of Scripture throughout the land. And they were used to being the ones in control. They, they, they wanted to, to place a false sense of authority onto Jesus. That's why their attitude was, who do you think you are? Who did Jesus think he was? God! He even said it, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That means Son of Man, in the Jewish mind, is God. Jesus said, the Lord of the Sabbath. I am God. Is what he was saying. I have authority to say what is, what is this or that. I have the authority, you don't. I, Jesus, am the Lord of the law is what Jesus was saying. Jesus' point about the Sabbath, um, Jesus was indicating uh, God's true intention for it. You know, he was demonstrating God's true heart, God's true intentions for the law. By by saying this, this is what he basically was saying, is that the Sabbath is a gift to enjoy. You know, all the way at the very beginning of life, all the way at the very beginning of of the law, It was always about enjoying, not a burden to bear, nor an inconvenience to be shrugged. 
And that's what the lordship of Jesus is. That's what our, our illustration, that's, that is the whole thing that we're getting to here today during this teaching is, is all about, is that the lordship of Jesus in the kingdom of God today in the church is a blessing to receive, to live by, and not a burden to bear, nor an inconvenience to our personal sovereignty to fight. Jesus is, I love this, this, this phrase, our benevolent dictator. What does that mean? So let's look at the word benevolent. Benevolent, you know, kind and charitable, good, generous, open-handed, unselfish. Jesus is this, this, this lavishing, you know, this pouring out, this, this just in abundance. Jesus even said, you know, who of you who asks his father for a loaf of bread will be given a rock or a snake or just something bad? No, your father will give you what you ask. I tell you, I love giving things to my kids. I love saying, guess where we're going today? We're going to the donut shop. Like, I'm excited to give them good things that they enjoy. We're going to Yellowstone. We're going to the park. I love it. And that's the heart even like a billion fold of our heavenly father, of our God. He is benevolent, giving, pouring out, lavishing on us. He's also a dictator. Now, in, a, in the positive sense, again, benevolent dictator. What does that mean? Monocrat. So a monocrat is a system of government that is government by one person. No one else has a say over what goes on. He has absolute power over everyone and everything. And that is our God. He doesn't share the throne with humans. He doesn't share the throne with angels. He himself is on the great throne and he brings us into his presence to rule and reign with Jesus. Remember, his throne is next to the Father. So God reigns, rules and reigns. But he does not consult anyone. When we look at Job 38 and 40, where were you when I set the limits of the, of the oceans and, and, pl- and placed the stars and the heavens? Where were you? What authority do you have? You don't. Jesus, and the Lord, is our benevolent dictator. But we have to recognize him and, and re- you know, recognize him and place him in that place in our lives. The Pharisees were wrangling with God himself when they were challenging Jesus. You can give you this, this image. So all the way back, Mount Sinai, after Israel had crossed over the, you know, crossed the, you know, the Red Sea had split, you know, they were coming out of Egypt, and then the, the, the Red Sea crashed back, back behind them, and they were in front of Mount Sinai. The voice of God was, was rumbling, speaking to the people. They were in awe. They're like, Moses, don't let God talk to us anymore. You talk to us on, on behalf of God. The, the earth shook with God's voice. That is the God that they were wrestling with and wrangling with right in front of them. The word of God, John, John chapter 1, is Jesus. Jesus is the word of God. That roaring voice from Mount Sinai was Jesus. They received, you know, Moses received the law at Mount Sinai from Jesus. So it's like, I can almost imagine in Jesus' head, like 
these, these Pharisees like, where were you when I wrote this? When I wrote this? I know what I meant when I wrote this myself. When I was there with my chisel, with my hand, writing the, the Ten Commandments, where were you? And you're going to tell me how to interpret this? And that's what Jesus' point is. Where were you? I am the Lord. Jesus never said he was exempt from observing the law or the Sabbath. Because remember, he wrote it. What are you saying? He was actually, he is, he, he was, you know, then when he, was, when he was walking the earth, and is the authority over our understanding and interpretation of God's heart behind the observance of the law and the Sabbath. Not if, but how we practice these things. It's God's, you know, Jesus is God's interpretation of these things. And number two, you know, be, you know, you keep using that word, Sabbath. I do not think it means what you think it means. So, <laughs> Jesus basically saying that you don't even understand what you're talking about with your weird rules and traditions that make no sense. They're, they have nothing to do with what I meant. They loaded the Sabbath and the law and made it heavier, made it heavier with the works rather than a day of rest and focus on what brought flourishing in life. Because Jesus' point in all this was that uh, it was not to be that uh, you know, the Sabbath and the law was designed to be filled up with religion, religious obser- observations, sorry, religious observances, practices, and prohibitions. Because Jesus was saying it's a day of rest. Here's what I meant by it. And what I meant by it was it's freedom. Because religion you know, the observances and practices and, and prohibitions, they bind. And which is exactly what the Pharisees were doing. They were binding people to control them, to have authority over them. And you can't control people unless you put rules and regulations on them. It makes it easiest to rule. Religion binds, but grace frees. Religion tells you what to do. But Jesus shows you who you are. And when you know who you are, you know what to do. So my question here this here today is, is Jesus your way, truth, and life? Does Jesus have authority in your life to what? Direct the trajectory and way you live your life. To determine what is truth and important. And three, to dictate what you think and do. Is he your way? Is he your truth? Is he the way that you live your life? In our world today, we have this over, over, over-realized sense of autonomy. Social autonomy, religious, you know, spiritual autonomy, political autonomy. You know, no one can control me is what we say. And in the church, a lot of times we, you know, we say, well, you upset me. You said something I don't like. Well, guess what? I'm going to give you a bad Yelp review and then I'm just going to go take my spiritual, go get my spiritual goods from another church down the road. It's not in the sauna. We, just like I did with the taco, jo- taco joint that I don't go into anymore. It's not just church that we do this. The church organizations that we do this to. We do this with God. 
God doesn't do something we like, we immediately either justify it in the, through the way that we perceive our faith and spirituality, or we go to, to a place that will tell us what we want. I mean, the Bible even talked about this. It said, there will come a time where people will not bear to hear sound doctrine, but will run to teachers to tickle their ears and to tell them what they want to hear. To help reinforce your spiritual autonomy, to keep you independent, to not bring you together into the, into the church, into this, what's, this blended ecology in the church. Um, you know, you fight against the almighty creator God often sometimes. We, we can do this. Like the Jews did but in front of, you know, like the Hebrews did before Sinai. Like the Pharisees with Jesus were doing, you know, thinking that you know better. You can do better. I can do better. I know better, God. I'm going to go run to this, or I'm going to run to that. I'm going to go and drown myself in alcohol. I'm just going to work myself all the time. I don't need to listen to you and your whole con- you know, thing about Sabbath and resting. We have this mentality that we can do and know better than God. Or do you submit your life to Jesus as Lord over your life to live His way, His truth, His abundant and full life? Because God is benevolent. God is good. God wants your good. See, God is trustworthy to be your way, truth, and life. To direct your, your way to, and trajectory to determine what is true and important in your life. And he is trustworthy. He is trustworthy to dictate what you think and do. To steer you and direct you in life. Where to go, where not to go, what, what to do and what not to do. To give you freedom. His desire is to free you. Galatians 5, for freedom. Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. For freedom, God loves you and frees you from these things. He frees you from addictions. He frees you from wrong thinking. What the Bible calls sin. Wrong thinking which leads to wrong action. Error, breakdown in your, you know, thinking, stinking thinking. Think God's way to think, you know, let him dictate your thoughts. This, this word repent means to change your mind, to, sh- to shift your direction, to align with Him, to align with God so that He determines what is true. So that He can direct you, direct your trajectory, direct your, the way that you live your life, the way that you feel, the way that you think, the way that you engage with others. So I ask you that question again. Here's the question I want to leave, leave you with here today. Is Jesus your way, truth, and life? Because what is the fruit of a life lived by the Spirit, lived by the direction of God? Look at Galatians. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That is the fruit of living God's way, God's truth, and God's way of living, life, his life, letting him fill you with life. Flourishing, this word, that word shalom, that life as it was in the garden, 
That is what God desires for you. God desires for your life, your family, your friends, our church, our, our city to flourish. That's God's heart. And that's what Jesus' point was in all of this. He's trying to get these Pharisees out of their laws, out of their religion, out of their rules and regulations, and into freedom, into life. Because that is life in the new covenant church of God. That is life. In, that's what life is supposed to all be all about in the church. That's what God's heart is for you. That's what God's heart is for us as, as saints in, in the church. And to cultivate a place called the church that we experience God's freedom, that we experience God's love, that we experience the shalom of God in the kingdom of God in, in this world. And we pray for that kingdom to come. As he, as, he, as he said to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so that's what we pray for. And that's what I, I pray that you are able to experience in your life. So God, I just thank you so much for this time and thank you for this message. Lord, I thank you for Jesus's words that we can trust you, that we can see you as our, as our authority, that you are the Lord of our lives. You are the Lord of this creation. And Lord, we pray that you would bring flourishing, that you would truly be our way, truth, and life. Because you are the way. You are the truth. And you are the life. So God, I pray that each person who, listens, who hears this would be blessed by that truth, would be led into that way to follow you, to put you as Lord of their life, truly place you on the throne of their lives because you are on the throne of all creation. So Lord, I pray your blessing on each one of us. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. Well, love you guys. We will see you next week. Bye.